Come in. Here we go again. Up early, feed the dog, out the door, traffic, at the office, boss in some kind of mood today, no time for lunch, annoying co-worker, no time to relax, bedtime. Then we gotta do it all again? Uh, no way. Because the best way to break up the mundane every day is to play. At Wild Rose Casino and Resort. Slots, tables, sports, and a whole lot of perks when you join and play with your club wild card. So, let's play. Wild Rose Casino and Resort, Clinton. Does your financial advisor take the time to really listen to you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situation changes? When you work with Edward Jones, they focus on what's important to you. You'll work together and use an established process to create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And they'll partner with you to help your strategy stay on track. Visit edwardjones.com or stop by the office of Todd Nash in Coralville, Jeff Rudolph, or Scott McGill in Iowa City, or Travis Whitmore in North Liberty. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Hello there, and welcome to the Hawkeye Hotspot Podcast here on hawkfanatic.com. Doesn't sound if it sounds like I don't have the same juice as I do at some at some points to introducing this podcast. It's because I'm a little sluggish today, trying to get some more coffee in me. It's been a busy week. It's been a hot week outside. I think that's uh, I think that's what's kind of taken out of me, Scott. I just Old men, old dudes, you get out in the heat a little bit for a few days, man, and it just kind of wears you down. I, I mowed the grass yesterday after being out for a couple of uh, state baseball games at sweltering Banks Field on Tuesday, and uh, I'm feeling it today. I bet you are. Uh, I know just walking from the dental lot to around <laughs> Carver Hawkeye Arena the other day because of that giant fence and crater that is going to be the new facility for, for wrestling and having no real ability to go anywhere and get in there. Uh, yeah. It's, it's kind of a chore, but yeah, Banks field was, I had, it was so hot that day, just doing that little 10 minute walk alone, what you had to be out there for, for Liberty and city high. So I can only imagine, <laughs> you know, how, how hot you were, but, I did, the, I did all my yard work on Wednesday morning when it was actually fairly pleasant. So I got it done before noon that day and uh, feel pretty good. That voice you are hearing is Scott Docterman from The Athletic. I am Rob Howe, and we are recording this on Thursday, July the 21st, a little bit before 9.30 a.m. Central Time. Uh, getting through the month, we're getting to the point next week, we'll be in Indianapolis for Big Ten football kickoff media day, it's extravaganza, whatever they call it these days. Uh, now it seems to have found a home in Indianapolis. We'll see if it continues to be there at Lucas Oil Stadium. Um, we had a press conference this week for the launch of Iowa Swarm NIL Collective. Uh, we had a press conference with Iowa basketball coach Fran McCaffrey and a couple of his players. Uh, so again, there really is no slow time of year, <clears throat> excuse me, 
in, uh, in, in covering Iowa athletics, but we are getting closer to football season. You can kind of feel that now uh, as we get closer. Um, where do we want to start today? Let's start with the NIL, Scott. I think that was a big story this week. That's a story that, um, you know, we've talked about quite a bit for the last year and particularly through this spring and into the summer, wondering when this was coming for Iowa and now it's arrived. Brad Heinrichs, former Iowa golfer is the CEO here. They've got a couple folks from uh, the Iowa foundation helping out here. University of Iowa foundation. That is um, it. Uh, I'm still kind of taking a wait. People have asked me about this and I'm still kind of taking a wait and see approach. And I think that's the prudent thing to do here because this is an ever changing landscape and this is Iowa's model right now. But that doesn't mean it's going to remain that way. And, you know, I think there's ability there to adjust. And we can get more into the nuts and bolts. And somebody asked me to explain this on the Mailbag podcast, kind of what was going on here. But basically, um, it's a socialistic system where the Iowa men's and women's basketball players and the football players basically get the same amount of money. And that's different than some of your competitors. But I get it. I understand why they're doing it. And now I'm going to wait and see if it works. Yeah, it's the, the I think the smart part for how this has been set up is there's two veins. There's the charitable vein, you know, where nonprofits will uh, go to uh, Iowa and want to request Iowa players or Iowa players can sign up or Iowa players will sign up. And those who sign up will all receive the same type of financial stipend per month. And so that, that doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a walk-on or if you're a five-star offensive lineman, you're going to get the same amount from that one. So I'd imagine that that will be fairly prudent. It'll probably be in the neighborhood of, uh, I don't know, $1,000 a month, something like that, which, you know, you know, maybe grow up to two eventually, but because you're talking about a hundred plus football players and, you know, 15 to 20 men's and women's basketball players, depending on their walk-on status. So that's a lot of money and that's a lot for those players. But then the second vein, which is probably more in line of what we're seeing with everything else is the, the ability for the businesses to go through the collective to try to entice or entice, you know, to try to hire. Uh, Iowa athletes to to do their marketing, and this is the method in which Iowa can pay their stars. So, uh, if uh, McGrath Auto or something like that decides, hey, we want Riley Moss to be our spokesman on our commercials, then and they will go through the collective. Well, and maybe that's a bad example because Riley backed off that, but uh, Lucas Van Ness, let's say. And you just, they decide to go through there. And that's how you get the, the capitalist part of this. So, you, you know, everybody gets a certain amount who signs up and then appears at all these different functions and what have you. But then, then there's the line of, hey, you're a very marketable athlete. You're Caitlin Clark. You're uh, Spencer Lee. Well, I guess Spencer Petrus or whatever. And then you can make money that way. So it, it's twofold. It really works out well from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, I, I st- stayed around late. I talked to some boosters and they've got some interesting ideas that I think will really help work, will help vault this. 
And one of which is that they decided to schedule a gala in September uh, to celebrate Gary Dolphin's 25 years behind the mic for Iowa. And uh, with the amount of money, uh, $2,500 per couple, $10,000 for a table, 400 people is what they're expecting. So that's that's a million dollars raised where every penny goes to the collective. And they're planning on doing more of those. And they feel like that is one way where they can do that, where it, it doesn't, there's a concern that if this feels somewhat smarmy and, oh, yeah, I don't want to just give them money. But this is a way where you can funnel your money to Iowa in, in the path that they choose. So, you know, the, really the ultimate question for all of this is, do you think this will help Iowa stay competitive and compete with their peers? And at, the, at first blush, I would say probably, you know, but I, I'm like you where you want to see it kind of unfold as the weeks and months and, you know, unfold and, and everything. And ultimately, and Brad talked about this on Tuesday, it's, it comes down to how much the Iowa boosters fan base uh, wants to contribute to this and feels like it wants to, cause that's, you know, collective that's what it is you're it's it's the group trying to help its university compete on a national level and um you know what you know what businesses are going to uh hook up with iowa student athletes to get sponsorship how much are they going to offer um you know you have uh you know, a a kid that can come into Iowa and emerge, and then you have to try to retain that, that kid. Um, There's so many layers to how this can work. And it's going to be the organization is going to be super important because you're you don't, you drop the ball one spot, and you lose somebody, you know, whether that's on the front end in recruiting, or in the, you know, during the time that that student athlete is on campus and is lured away we've seen it all over the country where kids are lured away to to other schools based on nil it sounds like some schools are making promises or have made promises that they can't keep um i think there's real potential here it's just going to be in the execution for sure and iowa is kind of i mean as we know they're they're kind of late to the ball game but it hasn't in football, it hasn't hurt them. I would say in basketball, it probably has. And it's a difference in these two sports where Iowa football is able to still kind of, you know, with the three-star prospects throughout Iowa and somewhat in the Midwest, they, uh, they understand how this is played. And they understand that the potential, and they're not necessarily, most of them aren't necessarily looking for something. Now, if they were, you know, playing hardball in the Southeast or in Texas or, in, you know, California, it's a little different ballgame. Basketball, as we know, there's always been the back end. There's always been the guy dropping off the cash. Well, in the transfer portal and with high up, you know, Fran said as much. I mean, I asked Perk specifically, and he said he, he's never, he never personally had a, 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 a prospect asking about NIL. Now, of course, he's sat back. But, but uh, Fran said that's the first thing that comes up. And so that's where the line is going to have to, I think within that second vein of capitalism, they're going to have to figure out 
with football, they might be able to get by with paying, not necessarily lump sum payment up front, but basketball, they might have to. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how far Iowa basketball could go. Because as we know, you, you just look around and, you know, a Tyrese Hunter situation is, is certainly possible. You know, they, it could have happened to the Murrays, frankly, but they're embedded to this community, into this area. But if, if Fran goes and gets somebody from Boston and he's a point guard and he's really, really good and he's a second team all Big Ten guy his first year, might have to figure out how to pay him. Otherwise, he might be heading somewhere in that part of the world. Yeah, and it's it's complicated, and you need um, you need to stay on top of it. And I think evolve is important here because we're only a year in, and this is still kind of working itself out. Uh, you know, from a regional standpoint, from a national standpoint, of you know, how is this all going to work? What is I know there are old school folks that pipe dream of that the NCAA is going to come in and rescue the day and, you know, monitor all this stuff and throw the hammer down and keep this isn't. And I I got the sense the other day and talking with Fran and Kirk uh, and Jan Jensen a little bit and and Connor McCaffrey and Spencer Peach. I thought they were all really thoughtful in, in how they talked about this. They know it's here to stay. Everybody that's involved over there knows it's here to stay. And the folks on the outside that think this is just going to correct itself, there could be some correction in the market and how this is handled. But for the most part, the that train's left the station. The NCAA screwed it up on the front end when they let it get to the Supreme Court. Now the universities and the conferences are left to pick up the pieces and you try to do it the best you can. There's only one way where you can really get a handle on it um, and keep it at a, you know, whether it's a, you know, just to be able to to really cut through some of this. And and that's through collective bargaining, because if if they unilaterally, if the schools, if the NCAA unilaterally decides, okay, we're going to ban this. I mean, they'll, they'll get beat worse than nine to nothing in the Supreme Court. (laughs) And they already did, you know? So, I mean, because, restricting trade you're you're just uh, the the it's unbelievable what you would end up doing and then you would probably completely junk the college system forever you know because then there it would go to a, a minor league base you think that the live for golf is, yeah. is a upheaval you'll have exactly the same situation with college basketball and prop you know maybe even something related to football so I, I think it's here to stay i think i was handling it right it's it's again a little slow i think people need to buy into it which is a little bit challenging uh, because you can't because sometimes like nil with with a certain group of people just feels uncomfortable like oh i don't know that just you know pay to play well it's not but you also have to realize and and uh you know not again i was moving forward but for schools that aren't or struggling with that all it takes is getting beat by your rivals a couple of times. And then you'll, then you'll figure out that you better get a new ball game or you're going to be a, you know, the underclass of your league. So I think in Iowa's case, the, you know, doing the, the gala, for instance, and getting that, that information and the fact that they're getting more of that, that is one way where you can engage donors on a level that they will appreciate and understand. And then 
you know, having that access like to the Duke game out in Madison Square Garden and stuff. I think that's that those are the ways that this can work for some people. And and uh, but, you know, it's going to take like like Brad said, millions of dollars per year. And you can't just, you know, Ohio State said $13 million for its football team. Iowa's probably not going to get that, but it does need to be half of that probably eventually. And so, you know, that that's what I think going forward is that those, those same people who have stepped up so many times to help build facilities and, and dow football positions and stuff are going to have to probably do the same thing to make sure that they keep a competitive roster in, in the you know, three, at least in this case, the three primary sports. And yeah, and as you said, you know, it's this, uh, uh, in large part, it's going to be a lot of the same people that they go to for facilities and, and, and um, you know, fundraising that they need, a, you know, for the athletic department as a whole. And I wrote a column about this back in this, in the spring when I, kind of criticized Iowa for dragging yeah. its feet on this. And I still think they're, they're behind and they're certainly could catch up, but it'd be nice if this would have happened back in the spring and you already got the funds now as you know, the school year is ready to start, but um, you know, there are slices to the pie and, and where does that get divvied up and how much does it take away? Um, you know, are there older school donors that are like, I don't want to give my money to the players. I, I'll continue to give it to, you know, scholarship funds or facility upgrades or what have you. So all of that stuff has to be figured out. And again, these, the folks that are running these organizations, and we talked last week about the players NIL, the football players have their own um, NIL set up uh, as a team. Uh, not all the players are participating. You mentioned Riley Moss, and he's told us that he's not involved in that. But I think they went on sale Friday, I believe. They they are, um, I don't know what they call them, a membership or whatever to that NIL collective. And I think they're around 1,000 sold out of a 2,000 they made available. So, yeah. you know, it's been almost a week. Is that, you know, is that encouraging? Um you know, I really didn't know. I didn't know, boom, the 2000 would go right away. Um, it seemed like it was strong out of the gate and then kind of stagnated a little bit. Um, again, like we talked about, Scott, this is new. We're, we have to see. You can go and, you know, Brad Heinrich can say, I think we're going to raise this amount of money. But you don't know until you go to people and say, hey, we need money. Can you give us money? And people are like, you know what? Things are kind of tight. Gas is four or five, four fifty a gallon. You know, groceries are going up. It's a tighter economy right now to start something like this. Yeah, it is, and that's going to be the the challenge going forward if if we officially enter a recession, uh, because you're asking people to give money. You know, that's never easy. Uh, you know, whether you're somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck or somebody who's you know making a million dollars a month or more. You know, there's a reason why you make a million dollars a month or more, and it's not by giving it all away. So I think there's uh, there's going to have to be some give and take. And I think, you know, the, the question was posed, and this is one that I've had all along, is, uh, you know, will you see competing forces on one side given to the athletics department and two given to the, uh, the collective? And they don't see that now. And I think it's fair that most Boosters will probably won't have a problem with that, but 
there's going to be some who will, and some will prefer to give it one way and some the other. And I, I think if I'm the athletic department, and they've got some great fundraisers there, obviously, otherwise they wouldn't be in the position they are. But with all the Big Ten, the media rights agreements, and after USC and UCLA coming in, that's going to boost it up to, I'll say conservatively, $80 million per year because they're going at 57 now. Uh, you know, you can you can make do on some of your media rights money for a little while if you kind of tell them to funnel some, some maybe instead of giving 100,000 to the athletic department, give 75 and give 25 to the collective or, or more in that realm. So I think they're going to have to massage it. It's going to take time. My, to me, the biggest indicator is what are your peer institutions doing? It's not going to be what Ohio State and Alabama and Texas A&M and Miami do. It's about how does, how is Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa State, and Nebraska and Missouri even, um, what are they doing with these collectives and how are they performing? And you've got to make sure you stay on par with them. So when you get into the recruitment stages in, in Illinois and stuff, you've got to make sure you're able to compete with them more so than worry, because if you're way behind them, then that will cost you big time. It'll, it'll cost you games and a lot of them. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, competing with your peers. Um, I think there's a hierarchy in college sports and there's an opportunity now for that to change a little bit. You've still got your blue bloods and they're going to remain that way. And, you know, they've got, you know, the revenue that they generate uh, will just, you know, it's all relative. It'll go up from wherever it was. You talked about media rights deals, all that stuff. It's, and Connor McCaffrey mentioned this the other day. He goes, you know, it's not losing a player to, um, and I think he had guys specifically in mind to Texas Tech and Old Miss. Yeah. But it's losing a guy to Loyola, Chicago, or, you know, no offense to Drake or you and I, but one of those schools, um, you know, that's, and maybe not even that mid-major level. Maybe it's like you said, Missouri or Wisconsin or Minnesota or something like that. That's where you have to find your sweet spot and be able to maintain where you are right now yeah. on a changing landscape. You know, and the sports are so different and Iowa's position in those sports are so different that it, that's what makes it interesting and also, you know, scary. Um, I, I think, you know, kind of the regionals schools that I mentioned, you know, pertain more to probably more to football or to mid-level men's basketball recruits where, uh, you know, and then in football, you, now that the Big Ten will eliminate divisions, you've got to throw a, a Michigan State in there and, and some mm -hmm. of those others. You've got to make sure you're competitive with You've got to make sure that, hey, if they're going to, if they're thinking that they're going to get this guy 50K, you've got to be in that neighborhood too, or more, or whatever. Basketball is different because I don't think that the Iowa's in that hierarchy. Um, it's not in the ultra upper level blue, bar, uh, blue blood hierarchy like in Kentucky, Kansas, or Carolina, or Duke, but I think you should be able to go against head to head against Ohio State and Michigan and for a basketball player. And, and then you've got to make sure you have enough that for your game changers, because one player can make all the difference in the world in that sport. 
you've got to make sure you have enough gas in the tank to get that. And uh, whether that's a, a post player from the University of Louisiana um, <laughs> or, you know, or somebody from Utah Valley State or a four star that's just, you know, a pretty good player that wants to go there. You know, that, to me, that's just what it's going to all be about is being able just to continue to field a competitive roster with players you think you can already get and um, not to go down a tier in recruiting and and uh, if you need to go up but I was kind of what basketball I would say just about every year you know they've kind of had guys who they can build and develop and become good players and then game changers you know a Wies camp or uh, Luca turned into that but he was a four-star um you know, uh, Tyler Cook was probably in that neighborhood. You know, you, you got to make sure that you have enough funds for a Tyler Cook. And then you're, and I'm just using this as a recruiting perspective. You have enough funds for Tyler Cook, but but just make sure you, you have something for Jordan Bohannon, but it doesn't have to be the same thing. Yeah, and you made a good point earlier, the retention. You know, Chris and Keegan Murray are from up the street and grew up Hawkeye fans, that's a different dynamic than, and I'm not saying, you know, Tyler Cook or Devin Marble or Aaron White or guys that are from different areas of the country, those guys, you look at them now and you think, oh, they would never leave Iowa. They're Iowa true and true. Devin a little bit different because obviously he was a legacy, but, you know, Utah was an in-state kid, but some of the, Luca, some of the, the regional guys or guys from around the country um, that's where it's going to get interesting too, especially in basketball. Like you said, where one guy can change so much. Schools, uh, competitors are going to try to poach your guys. Look last year with CJ Frederick. He was poached. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it certainly didn't work out for him on the court last year, but, but that's the type of thing you've got, got to be conscious of. And, and that's why you've got to be smart and diligent in your recruiting but if you get players who look at themselves as upper level guys or who have, you know, taken that jump, you know, Luca and Keegan are two perfect examples of guys that you, you better keep at Iowa. And they probably would have stayed, you know, Luca flourished and became that all time great Hawk who in 20 years will be able to go out to center court and wave his hand and everybody's still going to stand up and cheer. Uh, Keegan of course is right up the street, but if you get that guy from Chicago or if you get that guy from Cleveland or wherever, or Boston, um, you know, you've got to make sure you keep them. You've got to make sure that they're not getting poached. And, and that's also going to require some communication that maybe isn't always been there because when things like that come out of the blue, uh, you know, it's one thing for Isaiah Moss to leave for Kansas. I don't think he was totally happy at Iowa. And I think that was pretty obvious, but to see, you know, uh, uh, you know, Frederick was kind of a shocker to some and, and I think they've got to be cognizant of that. And, you know, and then at the same time, it's cutthroat world. Be proactive in your own right. If there's somebody from South Dakota State or somebody from Loyola of Chicago or uh, a Mac school that you think could fit your and help your program, you know what? That's just the way the world works these days. No question. Um, and conversations that I had the other day are starting to pop back up to me. Um, and talking to Spencer Petrus, he's like, you know, it, it, it's, it's a different world than even when they entered college, he and Connor and, 
yeah. some folks I talked to the other day that they, they didn't think this was ever even possible when they got here. And now it is. And so they're kind of in, they're kind of in it right now. They're seeing a change, a, a seismic change in college sports. And um, Spencer's like, listen, you know, it's up to the universities, almost echoing what you just said, Scott, it's up to the universities to figure out how this works because Spencer said, you know, as a player, if somebody can make, you know, if somebody can get a million dollars from a school, um, I don't blame them. If, if somebody was on the Iowa roster and, and somebody at Texas or Oklahoma offered a million dollars and Iowa can't compete with that and the kid goes to Texas or Oklahoma, Spencer's like, I completely get that. And if you, if you say you don't get it and you're screaming loyalty and all this other stuff, you're, most people would do the same thing. And if you're being honest with yourself, if somebody offers you life-changing money, you're going to take it. So why do you have to be the good guy when you're watching the Big Ten get a billion-dollar TV contract, but yet you want this guy who's Mm -hmm. all-American to stay at his given school instead of getting a million dollars from another school? You can be mad at that all you want, but that's what the reality is right now. Absolutely. I, you know, that when you look at, you know, every year come draft time and you see a very few, I would say very, a very short list of people who complain about, oh, he's just leaving for the money. He doesn't really love I Bullshit. I mean, you, you've got to do what's best for you. And, it, and, if, and I, I, I think that spills over into college athletics. And, and let's, let's use this as an example. Tyler Goodson after the 2020 year, if it, let's say 2020 was actually 2022, he had a thousand, uh, you know, his first team, all big 10 running back. If an SEC school says, Hey, I'm going to give you 200 K per year or a year or 500 K or whatever it is, you've got to take it because you don't know how your career is going to get shaped out after this. Cause Tyler Goodson didn't get drafted. He had a thousand yards last year. He was first team all big 10, two years ago. Still didn't get drafted. Now, you know, he has a chance, but that's not a great chance. Or any take any of your players from the past. Um, but that's one to me that you've got to be careful and you've got to make sure you have your guys. Now, if somebody, again, comes to a player and offers that much money and he doesn't go, then, you know, take care of him. You know, and, and maybe that's a situation like a Caden Proctor, you know, where – he didn't go after the bag. Iowa did, you know, there were some conversations to, from, with collective people that, hey, uh, you know, we'll make sure we get you something. But it's you, you've got to make sure that you make do and reward that loyalty. And that's that's where the Iowa donors come in. And uh, and I, I don't know if I was to put up a Twitter poll, Rob, if people were to say which is, who is more valuable to Iowa. Chris Murray or Gary Barda, what are people going to say? Yeah, I think that would be a lopsided poll. And uh, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that, you know, uh, clash of old school and people trying to push back against this. And we're seeing it from some of the, you know, the Nick Sabans of the world, guys that are making like nine, $10 million a year saying, you know, this this is too much and I get that but that went away that 
was killed and squashed with the Supreme Court. Now you have to adjust. And in recruiting, you have to adjust. And Iowa football and men's basketball, Fran's very good at identifying talent that others maybe not don't see. Yeah. Iowa football coaches are very good at that. Oh, yeah. It becomes even more important now on the recruiting trail. You may, I mean, there are only so many offensive linemen that can go to Texas and make whatever they're making or automatically just being a Texas offensive lineman. There's only so many guys that can do that or go to Oklahoma or whatever. I was got to make sure it gets the guys that aren't going to those places for those reasons. It has to get, and it, I was done good at, has been good at doing that. It needs to even be better at it now. Yeah. They got to maximize their, you know, their, their recruitment. No question. I think, you know, there are just certain, there's, there are certain positions of course in football that I think they, they do a great job. And I think recently, two years ago, this year, uh, in recruiting, when it comes to offensive line, they've done a great job. They've gotten high upper echelon players that they want for specific reasons. There are positions that they don't do as well. And I think receiver is certainly well documented. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and I would say they under-recruit tight end too. And maybe this is where NIL helps out because when you have a kid who is an Iowa fan all these years from Omaha, Nebraska, who's a four-star, who could probably help you out right away. Now with NIL, you're going to have to go after them and, you know, not let them go to a place like Auburn, you know, and the, there's no reason for that. You are tight end you and you should be able to, to do that. So, but, but by and large, I think both do an outstanding job of developing players. There's, there's no question about that, uh, but they're going to have to do an even better job, fewer misses. And in some cases it's getting the right people. You know, I think we're seeing this with the 2024 class. It's get the right players on the bus and figure out their seats later on. And if they're great athletes, if you feel like they're going to help you, don't hesitate, pull the trigger. And uh, maybe they'll grow into a certain position. Maybe you can change them and shoehorn them into another position. But I think um, we'll, we'll see that. So this is just a, a fascinating ongoing debate because six months ago, did we know much if, if at all about collectives? I mean, very little, if anything. Nine months ago, we knew nothing. So who knows what's going to happen in spring of 2023. <laughs> we could be in a completely different spot. Yeah. And there are a lot of smart people involved. There's a lot of money at stake. So, you know, there's going to be people looking for every angle and every way to get a leg up on the competition. So, so I was saying earlier, this is a fluid situation and we're going to have to, for Iowa, Iowa's going to be, have to be able to be very organized and be able to adjust on the fly when needed. So, and keep up with the competition. So just another area of uh, college athletics that uh, get a little bit more involved. And uh, we'll certainly talk about NIL quite a bit. Moving forward, I want to let folks know that support for this podcast comes from Systems Unlimited, celebrating 50 years of providing services to people living with disabilities and mental health needs throughout East Central Iowa. A list of their services can and upcoming events can be found at S. UI.org. Thank you for support from Systems Unlimited, Edward Jones, and Wild Rose Casino. So staying on the money theme, Scott, Iowa um, budget came out this week, athletic budget, and uh, looks like $57 million. Um, It's a lot of money. 
And uh, <laughs> I think uh, with, you know, we saw kind of the uh, friction this week between the, the folks that are trying to survive here from the ACC to the Big 12 to the PAC, whatever it is now, however many schools they have left. Mm-hmm. But those are kind of the three that are kind of fighting for crumbs here where the SEC and the Big Ten are in really good shape. And I think when you look at where we were a few years ago during COVID and, and right around this time, Gary talking about the deficit and Iowa needing to take the loan from the, the general fund, the $50 million that it's in the process of paying back. And I say Iowa Athletics uh, took that loan out. Iowa's just in, in good shape right now. It's bounced back from COVID uh, the way they had hoped. And uh, now moving forward, and we'll kind of see where this TV deal lands. Um, now, you know, it's the that timeline is, has been pushed back a little bit with UCLA and USC being added. Uh, but that number is going to continue to go up. And uh, we'll find out more about that probably. We'll get a little bit more on that next week when we're in Indianapolis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 57 mil from the Big Ten alone is a big number. Um, you know, last year it was about 55-ish. Um, the year before was not close because of all the stuff with, uh, you know, cutting football down and everything. But, you know, right now they're back pre, you know, their full budget is pre-COVID at $128 million, which is the, the last pre-COVID budget was 125 So they're they're back to being where they wanted to be. And, and of course, pay, repaying the $50 million over 15 years um, is, is going to be a significant spot for them. And, you know, they, I think what, if anything, COVID hopefully taught them is they do have to have a lot of reserves (laughs) and then they also have to pay this back, you know, prudently, but, you know, you don't want to be cash poor, but you want to get, get it off the books as soon as you can. And, and so I think that's going to be crucial. I know a lot of people will say as soon as all that money comes in, oh, this is, does this mean they're going to add those sports back? No, they're not. Now everything's kind of coalesced around the sports that they have. I, I would, if I had a preference, it would be to keep men swimming, but that's, that's me, not them. So yeah, uh, this year they're moving forward. Uh, football is on course to make some pretty good money you know they've already got two sellouts michigan and and iowa state Uh, today is when the general public gets to buy single game tickets so i would expect probably what homecoming against northwestern to probably be pretty close to that wisconsin i think eventually nebraska probably gets close and then i don't know south dakota state probably does too it's the opener and south dakota state travels well so I would expect, uh, you know, the and then the, the Nevada game's a night game. So I, I think I was going to do really well. And football um, tickets, uh, you know, is, is another major influx of cash for that athletics department. Yeah, which was missing, obviously, in 2020, which was big, part of the big gut punch. Um, looking uh, macro uh, at next week in Indianapolis, Scott, what are some of the key topics uh, that will be discussed from a Big Ten uh, on a national landscape type of uh, discussion? As you can imagine, I mean, expansion and all the tentacles coming out of that monster. Um, 
will be the primary focus. It will be what everybody's talking about. What's the next step? Uh, what's the Big Ten's next step? Will there, you know, everybody wanted to talk about four super conferences. There's two super conferences and then there's others that kind of can compete. And it's just going to be a matter of, you know, what's that landscape going to look like, you know, not only in two years, but what, you know, how do all these other schools kind of figure out their next step? Notre Dame's going to be a major focus because that's the only school left for the Big Ten that they can look at and say, all right, they could provide um, more than what they would receive from the Big Ten um, in their next media rights negotiations. So that's going to be the primary focus. Obviously, the topics that we talked about NIL, you know, really around around the sport is going to be the, the focus again, as it has been the last few years. But, you know, the sport itself has a lot of really interesting storylines. I mean, you look at Ohio State, and that offense could be the best that the Big Ten's ever had. Um, they have three, I don't have to use a P.J. Fleckism, but elite players at, the, at three primary skill positions. Uh, Jackson uh, Smith and, and Jigba is as good as any player that's ever played the slot. After they lost, what, two top 10 receivers? Yeah, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave and, <laughs> and Jamison Williams. Let's not forget about him. You know, he transferred to Bama. And my God, what kind of a room was that? Um, <laughs> and then then uh, C.J. Stroud is, you know, had a record-breaking year as a redshirt freshman. And, and Travion Henderson, to me, is, is a star uh, at running back. And it's just going to be, can anybody approach Ohio State? I know. Some of our colleagues participate in that annual sports writers poll. Um, the athletic is not invited by that. So is that the Cleveland one? Yeah. Is it- I've never been invited to that. This will be my 26 year cover of Big Ten. Sports, I so. uh, I was when I was a uh, you know member of the Gazette, but uh, they don't like the athletic, so we're not allowed to be a part of. Um, you know, silly. All yes. silly. It's silliness. Yeah. So it's, it's stupid, you know, like, like we don't know football, right? <laughs> but but uh, uh, yeah. the other question I had and kind of folded into this, and I wonder how much of a big of a topic it's going to be. It, it has been this week uh, at SEC, the college football playoff. Where, where are we going with this? That will be a focus. And I think now the big 10 is the big 10 was kind of, tepid on, on a lot of the, those discussions under Kevin Moore in the first year as part of the alliance and uh now the, uh, Ten, the alliance may it rest is, in peace long live the alliance go die alliance but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the uh now now to me it, it's going to be it's going to grow it's going to grow to 12 you know or even more and now the big 10 and sec can say we want as many at larges as possible we don't want it to be a six and six where the six best conference champions against, you know, and then also six out larges. I don't think we'll see the, the philosophy of only champions can get first round buys. I think that's all out the window. And it was interesting. One of the things I talked about with Kirk Ferentz on the side the other day was, was about that. And he's, he thinks four is the worst possible number you can ever have. He said it should be two or go the other way, go 12, 16, 20, whatever. Um, because the, the focus of four, he thinks, ruins the whole sport in the last month of the season. 
And I, and I kind of get that actually, I think he's right. And, and so I think it'll be college football playoff. There'll be maybe four automatics and they'll be sprinkled in like everybody else. I don't, because the, the, the SEC and Big Ten with the teams that they're bringing in, they have no reason to want to say that the Mountain West should get a bid um, over our team that's 11-2 and two in these types of leagues. So I, I would expect wholeheartedly um, for the Big Ten and SEC to push for as many at-larges as possible, perhaps an entire at-large field. No, no conference champions get at, at, at all. And, 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 the, and the other part of this is the Big Ten blew up the, its greatest historic tradition in the Rose Bowl by taking the two most valuable properties to the Rose Bowl, including the host school. Um, that means the Rose Bowl is no longer the entity that can stand in the way of any of this. So I would, I would not be surprised at all. In fact, if every round going into the semifinals is on home campus. And I think if you're the Big Ten and SEC, you absolutely welcome that. If you can get, if you're Ohio State or hell, even Iowa. I mean, what if Iowa is a seven seed and they get a host at 10, you know, an Oklahoma State or a Florida or, or somebody like that the first week of January on your home campus? It instantly is the biggest game that ever happened in your, in your, in your stadium's history. So I, I, that's my expectation that the bowls will be, continue to be devalued. They'll agree on probably a 12, um, you know, a 12 team playoff with two rounds on host campuses. And then you'll see uh, um, as many at-larges as possible get in. Yeah. The bowls were, we knew we should have seen when the Outback bowl changed um, to whatever it is now. Reliant West. Okay, that should have been the that should have been the writing on the wall that the polls were con- going to continue to be devalued. If there's no more Outback Bowl, what the hell is the point? What are we doing? So I um, know no no more uh, blooming onions in the press box, which is probably a good thing. This is travesty. Yeah, but hopefully we still get this. You know, when we go back there this year, uh, <laughs> hopefully we still get the same uh, uh, media media hospitality lounge because it's about as good as it gets. Just a. Uh, just, just an interesting time in college sports right now. There's so many, so many moving parts throughout all of this from, you know, naming rights to all this other stuff. We'll kind of see where that goes. Um, in, uh, in Indianapolis next week, it'll be Kirk Ferentz joined by J- uh, Jack Campbell, mm-hmm. Kayvon Merriweather, and Sam Laporta. This is always interesting, Scott, because there's, there are always other, candidates for this i think they they pick three really good candidates uh three guys deserving uh certainly you know riley moss and spencer peters are two that i thought you know are were in this mix and there are others as well but uh i think this they'll be well represented with this trio well as we know because we voted and probably lobbied for Kayvon to, to win the inaugural Golden Gavel Award with how he deals with media and, um, you know, and being able for him to go on that trip to Selma last weekend. And um, there's no better representative of Iowa athletics, especially in light of what it's gone through the last few years than, than Kayvon Merriweather. And, and he's a starting, he's a starting defensive back. And I think that makes a world of sense, um, you know, perfect representative there. And then you took probably your best, two players on offense, one on offense, one on defense 
to come to Indianapolis. And I think that's a really a good thing because, you know, we saw it over the years. Now, both of them are older, so that, that kind of, you know, makes it easy. But over the years, we, it seemed like Iowa and what we thought and what they thought, you know, just did two different things when it came to this. We always thought you bring your best three players or whatever, and they always thought, well, we'll bring – three representatives and they never really seem to meet. They're more parallel in some ways where, you know, Hey, this guy works hard and he represents us the way we want to be represented. And, and we're looking at, well, you know, Noah Fant's a pretty good player. AJ Epidez is a pretty good player. Akin Wadley's a pretty good player. Uh, why are they there? So I think they came about as close as you can to doing that this year. Um, you know, Riley Moss would be the one that got left out. That I went, Oh man, that's kind of a bummer, but but, you know, and Tory Taylor even, too. I mean, I wouldn't advocate for punters very often, but, man, he's uh, he's very intelligent. And uh, so I, I think that would that would have been fun. But I, I think these were about as three of a good representatives as they can ever have. Yep. And a, kind of for people that wonder why that means anything, it's just a good reflection. You have media members from other schools and other areas of the country that get, you know, often their first exposure to Iowa guys. And it's good to have, you know, solid representation. And I will certainly have that. Um, you had a piece earlier this week, Scott, uh, um, recounting your time that you spent with Brian Ferentz, talking offense, film study, things like that. A uh, lot of bulk to that. I have not, ha- have not had a chance to read that. I've been busy this week, so I'll let you kind of just – Hit the highlights for us on that, and I, I encourage people to to read that over at the athletic. Yeah, it was uh, it was revealing, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, it was it was fascinating. I mean, I spent about six hours with Brian in early June, and just you know, we spent close to two hours kind of talking, just chatting about stuff. A lot of it, I mean, it wasn't really on record necessarily. It was just you know, whether it's philosophy or getting a feel for Brian or, or whatever. And then we really went heavy into the details and it wasn't so much of a, uh, I gave him a list of about six, seven, eight games. And I wanted to see him to break it down. And it was kind of a mix between some good game plans or some good performances and some bad ones. And sometimes it didn't even really mean the same result. I, you know, I asked him about running inside zone against Kentucky, for instance, um, which was really effective. They just didn't win the game. Uh, but the two that I settled on in this story, and I think right now I'll probably add later on this summer to another one, but was, you know, we went through the Ohio State game plan and we went through Northwestern in 2020. Everybody knows what Ohio State game plan we're talking about. Right. We've only played them once and that game will live on no matter what happens this year. Um and how they put together that plan against, let's let go with Ohio State, how they put that plan together to be so effective. So uh, it was it was really fascinating because we he had almost the perfect plan for Ohio State. And it started about nine months before it actually went on the field. And he explains that what he does first in game planning is the schools that he doesn't really know what their DNA is and how they're made up, he starts looking at them in January to February. And a lot of times it's, first he looks at them at their own, you know, they break down their own stuff and 
you know, but when he's like traveling for recruiting or whatever, then he'll go to, uh, yeah, he'll start looking at teams he doesn't know. And Ohio State obviously is one of those because they don't play him very regularly. And, and then throughout the course of the season, then there's updates and stuff. And they saw some flaws and they saw some things that they did, some tendencies, um, even in games that they won big, you know, Rutgers was one. He said they won like 56 to nothing against Rutgers, but they kept doing the same thing against the same looks. So they packaged that. And then, then they also looked at, um, you know, so he decided because of the way that they run their, their back seven to start with an unbalanced look and then use it to see how that they would play that and verify that they were going to play the same way. So on the very first play of the game, it wasn't necessarily a dummy play, but it was one that he wasn't really focused on winning on. He started Fant Hawkinson on the same play where Hawkinson was on the line of scrimmage along with the split end. So he was ineligible officially. And then what he did was trade it over. You know, when they go in motion before the motion, the pre-motion pretty much. And he saw, okay, the adjustment is the same that he expected. So they ran a play, they did, they did it again. And then they did it another time just to verify it. And then by the second quarter, it was like, okay, we got him. We know exactly how we want to attack him. And they couldn't do shit against those two tight ends. They were all over the fucking plate. Or excuse, me, excuse my French, but they were all. <laughs> I'm using Brian Ferentz disses now. But, you know. Far, were, this podcast is not family friendly. <laughs> okay. That, you know, there, were, there was one play. It was more like a stick route that uh, um, TJ ran for a touchdown. And Fant went in the flat, and the linebacker, who should have been covering, uh, Hawkinson went with Fant, and so did the corner. Then the, the two safeties went with uh, Nick Easley and touchdown. Then, you know, there were two other times in the second quarter where they're, they're kind of backed up. And bam, bam, they went right down the field for like 20-yard passes to Hawkinson. And their communication was bad. They had no idea what they were doing. And it's like, we're just going to – now we've got them locked in. And then Fant's uh, – the, the one that was most fascinating was, you know, that Fant uh, touchdown route on the upper sideline or mm-hmm. the, the sideline closest to the Dios. Uh, they actually got a different look for what they were expecting. But he was like, I don't care. Noah's going to outrun you know, and yeah. he did for the touchdown. So it was it was really detailed, detailed to the point where I I know kind of football, I know their system, their scheme, but that was it was a lot. It was a lot for me to digest. But uh, so that was that was really revealing in so many different ways. And then the Ohio or the Northwestern game was to a different extent, and that was. Um, they're really, yeah, it was painful. They're up 17 to nothing at home against Northwestern in a season where if they would have won that game, if it would have been 23-21, they hit a field goal. Um, they're going to Indianapolis. I think that team wins the Big Ten Championship. I think that team goes to the playoff. Other than Bama, I think that team could compete with the other teams there, personally. But what happened in week two, really mattered and, and so I wanted to kind of get the, the full range of that and then narrow it down and one was when it was 14 to nothing and it was like third and two at the one or at the three I'm sorry um, they had a great fake Northwestern's coverage was all screwed up Sean Byer was wide open in the end 
zone, just wide open. But the edge rusher got in too quickly and Spencer threw it, but he threw it kind of weak armed, didn't get there. And then they had to kick a field goal. And Brian's like, we lost the game here. If we score, they're not coming back. And then later on though, you know, they, they missed a field goal by hitting the upright. So it was a bad luck day anyway. Then late, like midway through the fourth quarter, which was where he got really detailed. I wanted to know more about that interception that he threw that bounced off Sam Laporta's hands that they were inside the, they're about the 30 yard line at that point. And what he was saying was, you know, this is the route we're running. These are what they're, they asked to do. This is how they're playing it. And he went step by step. I went 45 minutes on this play. Just here's your gift. And that's what it was a Brandon Smith running a hitch route. And he's like, now Spencer would gun it. But he was a little leery of it because it's a gift that you could take it and you get five yards in this first down. But okay, you're not, he's not as secure in that route. So let's look at these routes and why, where these are going and what these are doing. And, and he's like, you know, so he got, he broke it all down so well. And, and I really, you know, I just uh, called, had the subline, this sucks because it was just, they were very, very close. They should have won that. They should have won Purdue too, for that matter, but, but particularly against uh, Northwestern. And, and so, it, you know, he talked about how he, one of the things he was most leery about, Rob, was he never wanted to make it look like he was blaming a player because he knows how that goes over. And especially for Brian, <laughs> you know, it doesn't go over well. And there were things I chose. Plus, he was a player. He knows. I mean, he yeah. knows the view from that angle, right? Because if he looks like, you know, Spencer screwed up, or the running back went this way, or the wide receiver went this way, and that comes out in my story, then people, are, oh, look, man, throwing everybody under the bus, you know. Plus, Brian, you know, he's got some challenges, <laughs> you know, with with PR and, and with people and and so uh, you know what people think I guess um so I really kind of kept that part out of it but he did a, go went over it and explained it and, and on that throw in particular he explained what maybe Spencer did right and what Spencer didn't do right so he could kind of make it more analytical as to okay number one he should have hit the gift which is Brandon Smith hitch route he's open you the corner can't get there in time but it's you know as you can see with the hitch route it's you got to throw it really quick, really hard, accurately, or it could be a dangerous pass. And now you do it. Then he was on his second start, so he's a little leery on it. Then, uh, you know, he's like, well, his drop wasn't good. He, you know, he bumped his feet up. He, you know, there were the fundamentals that weren't real good. But then it was like the spot that he threw it to wasn't bad, you know, and maybe Laporta should have came down with it. But anyway, and but then he hit through it to where only he could make that catch unless he tips it up in the air, which is what he did. And uh, so, you know, th there are a lot of other game plans we went through, and I'll probably identify them later on. Uh, you know, so on the good side would have been USC in 2019, which I can tell you um, without going through all my notes is um, I, I don't know that I've seen another team play as poorly against Iowa and be as just unable to handle the, the physicality that Iowa brought them. Um, Nebraska 2017, because, and, and this is more aspect rather than straight up game, is they slowed their tempo. I, I saw that mid game change and I wanted to know more about it. And then some of the, and then the losses. Uh, Purdue last year, what the hell happened? 
Wisconsin 2018, their red zone strategy. I want to know more about that. You know, so there were there were some really uh, fascinating parts of this. And I mean, I wrote like 4,500 words. <laughs> it was pretty long, uh, pretty detailed, but I could have probably wrote 20,000. And I'll probably, I'll, is well received. And as this was, I'll probably do a part two with some of those other games coming up. Yeah, check that out on The Athletic. Scott's got a more, much more in-depth story uh, for you guys to read about what he just highlighted there. Um, bottom line is it's a lot more complicated than uh, we think uh, on Saturdays. And yes, I get the snap judgments and, and get the bottom line is you're either productive and good or you're not. But there's a lot that goes into those things. And the margin for error is very thin. And uh, so that's kind of what I think should give people hope that Iowa can take a step forward offensively this year. That usually it's not as good as it looks, um, unless you're Ohio State, or (laughs) as bad as it looks, you know, when you're struggling like Iowa's offense did last year. So. Let's see what happens. People have asked me that, what I expect, yeah. what's a successful season for Spencer Petras. The bottom line for Iowa football is it's complimentary football, and I know people get tired as hell of hearing about that. For me, when I judge Nate Stanley, and, and it's going to be similar with Spencer Petras, can you make those big plays when it counts? Iowa historically plays a handful or less of games each year where you've got to be able to make plays when it counts, whether it's at Wisconsin at the goal line going in, uh, whether it's, you know, you look at last year hitting Nico Regani against Penn State. That's making a big play when you have to make a big play. It's not 30 touchdowns and five interceptions or whatever. It's complementing what they can do defensively on special teams. And this year, I just think, from on paper, Scott, when we're going into this, and we'll, we'll certainly talk about this a lot more as the season approaches, I think it's reasonable to think there's going to be a drop-off on special teams when you lose Charlie Jones um, and you're replacing your starting kicker. And we saw some certainly some concerning signs in the spring yeah. with kicker. There's a chance that that special teams – has at least a little bit of a drop-off. Maybe not. Maybe it just picks up where it left off. But that means you're going to have to pick it up somewhere else. How much can you pick it up defensively? The defense is already kick-ass. It can be better this year even, but how much can it make up? Maybe you need the offense to make up some for what the special teams lacks compared, compared to last year. And that's what it's all part of. I don't think you can look at it as much statistically, maybe with the exception of the running game, getting a certain amount of yards per carry, a certain amount of yards per game. I I think we all look at it and can tell beyond statistics that the running game needs to be more consistent for this offense to be better. For sure. Uh, There are different markers that you can use for Iowa that are different than other ones. Um, the laziest argument, I'm sorry for some people, is to use total offense. That is not what Iowa is about. They're not never been about that. And that's not going to be, that's not, that doesn't mean shit for Iowa. It's not about getting 500 yards a game. Yeah, if you get 500 yards per game and 300 of it are on the ground, um, yeah, you're going to see them probably on the last Monday night of the season. You know, you just are. 
that's not what they how they perform. I mean, their performance is dictated by, in a lot of cases, protecting their defense, which is the best unit that they have. Some teams do it completely the opposite. And and it's such an offensive focused sport and identity that people look at it and go, oh, okay, well, Texas Tech is throwing, you know, is putting up 600 yards. It's because their defense can't stop anybody. You know, it's because, you know, they're, they're winning 49-45, which is great. It's fun. It's exciting. But, you know, your defense is in a position where it can even slow down an opponent, let alone stop them. And, and I'm using them as an example. Maybe that's not fair. But but you look at and in Iowa, it's completely the opposite. It's like, hey, in order for us to compete, we've got to be good on defense. So our best players go play defense. Um, we coach it a certain way. It's bend but don't break. But damn it, you know they get to the quarterback. They stop people. They turn the ball over. And offense, for better or worse, it's risk averse. And uh, if you can run the football in that offense, and you can put together your four minute drives, if you can even flip the field, which sounds insane in some ways, but it's, if that's the goal, you're going to win a hell of a lot of games. I mean, and you know people putting up Brian's numbers of, uh, you know, where they finished, you know, total offense. The other flip side is, you know, over, over the last five years, they rank eighth among Power Five programs in winning percentage. The last four years, it's seventh. That's a big freaking number to me. So um, for Iowa to be successful, it has to run the ball with effectiveness. That's really the starting spot. And the, the markers, I think, Iowa has to hit are 60% completion percentage, 4.2 yards per carry. If they can hit those two, two and be successful on third down, more so than they have been, they'll be pretty good. If they can jump that up to 63% and like they were in 2020, 4.6 yards per carry, you'll see them in Indianapolis and they'll be competitive there. Um, so that's, I mean, those are the numbers that matter, not – you know, hey, they they don't get 450 yards per game. Um, that's that's just a different style. That's a different philosophy that doesn't work at Iowa because you don't have, you're not able to get the number of athletes to sustain that. Yes, you have to uh, be who you are, and I think Iowa does a good a job at that. Good job at that, and uh, we'll kind of see where things go, and we'll obviously break down. Uh, and preview the season a lot more as we get closer, particularly after, um, well, we will next week after we get to some exposure down in Indianapolis as well. Wanted to wrap up with a little Iowa men's basketball talk here, Scott. We got Fran uh, for the first time this summer on Tuesday. Uh, Also got Chris Murray, Josh Dix, and DeSante Bowen. I think we've pretty much gotten everybody on the roster now this summer. Uh, My question for Fran, I think it's an important question going in. I think Chad asked about the big men is really, you know, the Agundale Mulvey in, inside and then your point guard situation with Eulis and uh, DeSante Bowen. It was cool watching Bowen and Eulis go at it the other day in practice. Yeah. We got a little bit of exposure. I think those guys are going to push each other. Um, and Fran did mention that Tony Perkins and Connor can can work in at point guard too, and they can play some of those guys together. But those are the things I think for basketball that has, they have to work through point guard and then post because uh, point guard, they figured it out last year by moving Jordan Bohannon back to point guard. They don't have that option this year, believe it or not, Jordan is done with his career. And, uh, and, and they, they got exposed somewhat on the inside at times last year when things didn't go well. So those are the two keys for me 
uh, at least as we move through here into August. Yeah, I think the the post is the area that I'm most concerned about. I do think eventually they'll they'll figure out something at point guard and and it could be somebody. I mean, Connor could play there if they need him to. I don't think that's the best position for him or to the team, but but they could. Um, and I don't think it's the best spot for Perkins either. I, I think yeah, he's better yeah. off the ball. So yeah, he's just got to me. I look at Perkins and I just think a dog. A junkyard yep. dog, tough dude, makes tough shots, guards, just that's his spot. Let him play there. It's going to be about Bowen and Euless, and, it, and it'll probably be somewhat of a tandem. It's just a matter of who plays 21 minutes, who plays 15, and then there'll be four minutes for somebody else at some point, you know, sliding around. But, um, you know, so I, you want to see them bring the best out of each other before, you know, they can, you know, before they figure it out. But I, I mean, the post was an area of concern after Luca left. It's still an area of concern because they weren't able to, for whatever reason, be able to, to pull off a, a big man in, in the portal to fill that role. So can Riley Mulvey, can Joshua Gundale, uh fill in for Rebracha once in a while? I don't know. I mean, what, you know, I, I think that's going to be <laughs> cross your fingers, hope that, you know, try to minimize the importance of that position as much as you can and, take it when it's there, but really focus more on the players you have probably on the, on the wing to, to make things work. Yeah. And I'm interested. Uh, I have confidence that Chris Murray is going to be able to take the next step. Um, and he can't worry about, you know, the comparisons to Keegan. Um, he doesn't want to get himself caught up into that. I think he's mentally focused enough not to get caught up in that. He has teammates who will remind him of that and he's a different player than Keegan so I think it's important for people to realize it's not going to be the same but I think you can still get a really high level of production there with he and Patrick and Perkins uh, I think that's a really strong trio and then you just kind of fill in around that trio I really like Peyton Sanford I think he can be a real plus for this team uh, the way he shoots the ball and then uh, you know it really I think among those two, Bowen or Ulysses, you need one to emerge as a as a bona fide starter, a legitimate upper half point guard this year. I think that's possible. Um, you know, and, and I'm fascinated by, you know, talking to Josh Dix and just the horrific injury he went through. Fran thinks he's going to be ready by September. We'll see. Um, but Fran is um, eternally optimistic. I, you know. It's just me. I'd be very, very cautious, but he, he's privy to a lot more medical information about him than I am. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. But I, I do think, uh, you know, can he provide much to this team, even if he is healthy? I don't know. We'll find out. But. I think he can. I think he's a good enough shooter. And I think that's when you lose a Jordan Bohannon. I mean, you mentioned Sanford and I think he's he's a given. But you're going to need some more outside shooting. I think Josh Dix is that guy. Yeah. Hey, if you can get him, you know, if he comes in and, you know, it would have been a CJ Frederick normally. But, you know, if you, if Josh Dix fills that role, even if it's in piecemeal, they'll take it because you've, as we've seen, you know, Fran has done a really nice job of building his team, his offense, his strategy around his best players over the years. And it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's a combo guard like Devin Marble, if it's your forwards like Utah and White or, you know, Luca or, or Keegan, you know, he's going to do the same thing this year. And it's going to be primarily around Chris Murray, but, you know, uh, but he's going to have to, to, to make sure that, 
he, you know, kind of, again, covers up for the lack of a, of a post being able to be automatic, especially in this league against some great posts. And he's going to have to mask that with some other aspect that's, that's upper level. And it might just be that, that shooting touch um, from Sanford, maybe even Dix. And you'll have, uh, I, I'm confident in saying with both Bowen and Aaron Eulis, you're going to have a good, you're going to have a good on-ball defender, uh, you know, at, at top. So that's, that's a, that's a plus too. So you kind of, you may lose something here, but you gain something there. And that's, it's kind of the world of college sports. Yeah, exactly. That's if, you know, maybe you lose three points per game, but maybe you make it up for it because of the, of the defense. So that's, that's a plus. They play up tempo, so they're always going to give up more points than everybody else, but they're always going to score more points than everybody else. So it's kind of the opposite of what we just said with football, <laughs> you know, because yeah. it, does, it does work in combinations. You've got to make sure your offense and your defense, uh, because one, if you push one, it's going to take away from the other. So um, so I, I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic. And, you know, one other thing that happened, you know, what there were, what, four players drafted in the, was it top 10 for Iowa baseball? Yeah, you know, Adam Major got in the second round by the Padres, and um, you know, quite a productive day for uh, for Rick Heller. But I'm sure he's a little bit nervous about what it means in the, this uh, fall, winter, spring, and early next summer. Well, the good news is Keaton Anthony's coming back, so yeah. um, that that's definitely a plus. And Rick has had, I think we've got a track record now of Rick being able to reload for the most part. So we'll kind of look forward to seeing some of the guys, and we'll talk more about that as we. Move along as well. We'll get more back into more basketball. We're going to be football heavy here, probably moving moving forward here for the next several weeks with uh, with the season rolling around and media days and all that other good stuff. So Scott and I will be back to talk about that, and uh, we appreciate everybody listening. We'll be back a week from today and recap what we uh, what we gathered down in Indianapolis, and then move forward from there. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Wild Rose Casino, Edward Jones, and Systems Unlimited for their support of the podcast. And we will talk to you guys soon. Say goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Scott.